Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Nadine Strossen. She is the John Marshall Harlan II Professor of Law Emerita at New York Law School and past president of the American Civil Liberties Union. She is also a senior fellow with FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, and she has some other uh, affiliations. I'm leaving them all in the description of the interview. And today we're focusing on her latest book, Free Speech, What Everyone Needs to Know. So Nadine, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to have you. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ricardo. It's a delight to be with you and to have a chance to talk about the very important topic of my new book. Sure. Uh, and so perhaps let's start with some basics here. And I guess that the most basic question to ask here is, what is free speech exactly? Because I guess that later on, we might get into some misconceptions that people have about free speech advocates, for example. Uh, and so just to start targeting that from the very beginning, what is free speech? Ricardo, that is a topic that could take us hours and many, many people would have uh, different perspectives on it. But the way I use the concept is the consensus that has emerged, I would say, since the Enlightenment uh, in terms of what individual freedom is consistent with not only individual liberty and equality of rights, but also democratic self-government. Uh, it is not absolute because limits may and should be imposed when some people's free speech undermines the free speech or other rights of other people, or indeed undermines democracy itself. Let me make uh, two other points, if I may, please, Ricardo. One is I do not use the concept of free speech uh, as synonymous with the First Amendment, which can, is the portion of the U.S. Constitution that contains our free speech guarantee. Uh, perhaps I'll have a chance to elaborate on later that the First Amendment free speech guarantee is a very important source of free speech protection, but it is not enough to sufficiently protect a robust culture and meaningful free speech for everybody in our society. It's a starting point, but not an ending point. And the second introductory point that I would like to stress is that although American free speech law under the First Amendment is often uh, attacked by its critics as being exceptionalist and extreme and absolutist, I'm putting all those terms in scare quotes, to underscore that that is not accurate. And in fact, the most fundamental principles of First Amendment free speech law are almost completely replicated by the only international source of free speech law under United Nations treaties, which have been ratified by almost every country in the world. Now, it doesn't mean that those norms are necessarily adhered to all the time any more than First Amendment norms are automatically adhered to all the time by government officials in my country. But I think it's really important to note that as I ideals 
as aspirations. There is a huge amount of overlap between the United States standards and the international standards. Mm -hmm. So there are already several different things there that we need to unpack, explore a little bit more. But I guess that one very interesting thing that you mentioned there is that the case you're making in the book is not for absolute free speech or, I mean, so we nowadays see some people, particularly on social media and other places, say, claiming that they are free speech absolutists. <laughs> and for, uh, I mean, I guess that what they mean by that is that they, if it was for them to decide, they would allow all kinds of speech, I guess, regardless. I, I of can't imagine, I, I can't imagine anyone who wouldn't make some exceptions, right? Um, yeah. uh, for example, uh, committing perjury in a court of law, um, yeah. offering a bribe to a public official, uh, defrauding a customer if you're a member of business, yeah. falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater and causing a panic, to cite one famous uh, example of the limits on free speech from a United States Supreme Court uh, opinion. And in fairness, Ricardo, I have to say, that having debated proponents of many speech restrictions that I do not support, um, that it is unfair for them to call me a free speech absolutist, but it's equally unfair for me to call them a censor because all of us agree that speech should not be absolute, that some restrictions are appropriate. And where we disagree is exactly what limits, exactly under what circumstances, who should have the burden of proof, and what should they have to show. And once you understand that it's not really this false binary, I think it becomes a lot more interesting. And we can have discussions rather than debates that create artificial distinctions. For example, um, decades ago, when uh, there were first proposals to implement so-called hate speech codes on college campuses, I often participated in debates, are hate speech codes constitutional or unconstitutional? And I realized that that is an oversimplification because the actual question should be when are hate speech codes permitted? When, when may hate speech legitimately be restricted? When do these restrictions, when do these codes go too far? That's actually very interesting because I was also thinking that thinking in these black and white terms as if we either have absolute free speech without any restrictions at all, or if there's any limitations at all on free speech, then we don't have free speech anymore. I mean, it's it sounds a bit ridiculous. And also, I guess that's something that we'll also explore here a little bit more today. Uh, Ricardo, can, uh, may I make another point, which is, mm -hmm. I think, not so obvious, but it's very relevant right now at least in the United States with massive campus demonstrations, uh, given the politics of US campuses, mm -hmm. the demonstrations are mostly in favor of Palestine and uh, Hamas even, and against Israel. And many stu Jewish students and Israeli students on campus are saying that they feel intimidated 
by other students who are um, engaging in expression, right? But um, there are many reports, and I say reports because I can't do investigations myself and I don't believe everything that I hear, but reports that should warrant investigation that some of this expressive conduct has crossed the line into threats and intimidation and harassment and bullying. Now, all of that con constitutes expression on the part of the demonstrators, but when it crosses over into these unprotected categories of speech, it is having a chilling speech suppressive impact on the expression of other students, namely the Jewish students and the Israeli students and others who feel frightened and chilled and will not express their own ideas, or in a worst case scenario, won't even go out on campus at all or move about freely. So, you know, there's a somewhat of a paradox that if we want to have, you know, genuine free speech, for everyone, then we cannot allow people in the name of speech to engage in expression that does have a stifling impact on other people's speech. This is a very, very delicate issue. Uh, I wrote a whole book before the one that you kindly talked about called uh, Hate, why we should resist it with free speech, not censorship. And the whole idea there, which is supported by the US Supreme Court, is that if you dislike a hateful idea, you hate a hateful idea, uh, you shouldn't censor it, you should answer it back, you should discourage it, you should try to you know, critique it. And, um, and, and so what you are trying to do is to have a speech suppressive impact, but it's a matter of a delicate balance, to use a phrase we often use in American law. Uh, that is, when does counter speech go so far that it's really intimidating people from expressing ideas, not only the people that you're directly targeting, but people who share certain identity characteristics. So it's extremely complicated, and there are free speech concerns um, on all sides of these debates. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, this is certainly an ongoing debate, and uh, later on, I will also want to get more into counter speech and the concept of the marketplace of ideas, for example. But I would like to ask you now uh, a very concrete question. So, mm -hmm. what are exactly the goals of free speech? I mean, to be more specific, what does society have to gain? socially, politically, and I guess we could also say epistemically by allowing for free speech. And here, Ricardo, I want to stress that I'm not speaking solely for myself. I'm speaking on behalf of countless individuals and civil society organizations and movements from throughout history around the world, because there appears to have been a constant universal, eternal aspiration toward free speech. A friend and colleague of mine named Jakob Michangama, a Danish gentleman who's now working in the United States as well as Denmark, wrote a book a couple of years ago called uh, Free Speech 
a history, a global history from Socrates to social media. And he demonstrated that, you know, some of the, the, these goals have existed in every part of the world, in every historical epoch, under every governmental system. And the most important ones include, starting with the most um, fo individually focused, for individual self-expression, self-exploration, self-development, development of one's sense of identity, of one's ideas, um, the pursuit of truth, truth in every field, from scientific truth to philosophical to religious, depends on robust freedom of speech. Um, democracy, democratic self-government depends on the robust freedom of we the people who wield the sovereign power in a democratic republic. I was quoting the opening words of the U.S. Constitution, but the same idea exists in other democratic republics that where the sovereign power is wielded by the people, it is especially important for we people to have freedom to explore, debate, discuss with each other, uh, with those who seek to represent us in our government, those who should be accountable to us. Um, and, you know, in, in a cosmic sense, it is um, essential for some sense of meaning and virtue and deciding what is the good life. So, you know, from the most micro um, internal self-directed concern to the most universal global concern, freedom of speech is absolutely essential. For myself as a lifelong human rights activist, I continue to believe based on experience and observation that freedom of speech is the absolutely essential prerequisite for every other human right. And conversely, that censorship has been the most potent means for suppressing human rights. And so what would you say are the strongest arguments in favor of limiting free speech? Or at least what would you say are perhaps the situations, uh, contexts, and the principles that should limit uh, speech? The, I will start with what the U.S. Supreme Court has called the bedrock principle, in other words, the foundational principle underlying this very complex series of uh, rules that have developed through more than a century of Supreme Court decisions. Um, and that bedrock principle is usually referred to as content neutrality or viewpoint neutrality, that the government must remain neutral with respect to the content or the viewpoint, the message, the idea that is conveyed by the speech. No matter, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm gonna take a sip from my First Amendment mug here <laughs> to facilitate my speech over my horse road. <clears throat> no matter how unpopular or feared or despised an idea or a viewpoint may be, that alone is never enough to justify government restriction. However, 
if we get beyond the content, the message of the speech, and look at it in its overall context, in a, a very fact-specific determination that speech in the particular facts and circumstances imminently, directly causes or threatens certain specific serious harm, then the speech may be punished or restricted. And that concept is often referred to as the emergency principle. So it's not that you, the idea itself is repugnant, it's that the speech um, in its factual context poses an emergency. And let me illustrate that, Ricardo, by um, citing a few of the subcategories that the Supreme Court has recognized of speech that satisfies the emergency concept. One is intentional incitement of imminent violent or lawless conduct that is likely to actually happen imminently. So if somebody utters a you know, racist statement in the abstract, there, that's no justification for punishing it. We may want to answer back, we might, may want to ignore the speaker and so forth. Uh, but if the speaker utters that racist statement in a, you know, let's say it's a Ku Klux Klan leader who's addressing a rally of his supporters and he intentionally incites imminent violence by his followers against members of a racial minority and the imminent violence is likely to happen imminently, then that speech can and should be punished. Uh, let me give you another example and I'll give you a specific situation that satisfied it. This is another example of speech that satisfies the uh, content neutral emergency standard. I say content neutral because um, it, the speech is not punished based on the message alone. It's the message in a factual context that poses an emergency. And here the uh, second example I'm going to give is called a true threat. And the reason the adjective true modifies the word threat is to distinguish the legal concept from the everyday way we use the word threat in a very loose sense. I mean, I hear students on campuses saying, I feel threatened by the fact that Donald Trump is giving a speech uh, on my campus. Well, you know, they, I'm not disputing their feelings, but that's not enough of a justification to censor Donald Trump or anybody else who threatens in that loose sense. But a true threat, which may be restricted and punished is when the speaker is targeting a particular individual or group of individuals who are identified and intends to instill a reasonable fear that they will be subject to harm. Reasonable means that it's an objective fear. So the fact that a particularly thin-skinned person might feel frightened is not enough to justify the punishment. Now, here, let me give you Oh, and one other point, it's not necessary that the speaker intend to actually carry out the threatened harm because the mere fact that you reasonably fear that you will be subject to attack is enough to chill your freedom of speech and your freedom of movement. So let me illustrate uh, both the viewpoint neutrality principle and the emergency principle uh, by a tragic situation that occurred in the United States 
in 2017, which many of your audience may recall, the so-called Unite the Right demonstrations in Charlottesville, Virginia, in August of 2017, uh, a Confederate statue of General Robert E. Lee was going to be removed from the park where it had long been um, uh, mounted, uh, but it, in the cause of anti-racism in the wake of the George Floyd murder, there was a decision made to remove that statue. So that became a gathering uh, of a demonst massive demonstration of various white supremacist groups from all over the United States. And the day before the scheduled demonstration, they had an impromptu march um, in which they were chanting, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. Uh, these are odious words that refer to the so-called great replacement theory that supposedly black and brown people facilitated by Jews who support immigration and rights of refugees that we are all conspiring to uh, displace and replace white people. Um, as a Jew myself and an advocate of, of immigration rights and the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, I mean, these words could not be more horrific. And yet I completely agree with the legal principle that the odious content uh, the odious viewpoint does not justify government punishment, because I well know that in other eras and in other parts of this country today, Black Lives Matter and other speech that I support and agree with is also considered odious and dangerous by the local communities and local officials. So, you know, if we want freedom of speech for views that we love, we have to support them for views that we loathe. But consider the context that then developed in August of 2017. Uh, not only were these marchers chanting those vile slogans, they were doing so while marching toward a group of counter demonstrators in favor of civil rights who were massed around a statue of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, this was on the campus of the University of Virginia. And the uh, Unite the Right demonstrators approached the counter demonstrators at menacingly close distance, shouting in their faces and waving, brandishing lighted tiki torches in flames. That clearly crossed the line to a punishable true threat, right? A reasonable counter demonstrator would have reasonably feared being subject to physical attack. And one of the tragedies that um, every the consensus is after the fact, a study was done by a nonpartisan commission uh, that law enforcement failed to protect counter demonstrators against expression that was no longer protected, that was unprotected threats, not to mention failing to protect them against actual assaults and physical violence. So, you know, the law is very commonsensical. The speech that does the most harm because it poses an imminent danger um, of, of imminent harm can and should be punished. But correspondingly, the censorship that does the most that poses the greatest danger because it empowers government to pick and choose ideas and viewpoints that it likes or dislikes. That's the most dangerous form of censorship. 
in a democracy, and that's outlawed. So in terms of speech that causes harm, of course, you've already touched a little bit on that earlier, but I want to come back to this. So hate speech, because that's something that people have been debating a lot. What do you think of the idea of people in the public space espousing ideas that even if they are not directly inciting violence against particular groups of people, usually minorities, but it can be uh, other majority groups, it doesn't matter, uh, uh, even if they're not directly doing that, uh, those ideas, if they get normalized, would make people feel more at ease to discriminate against certain groups of people in society. I mean, do you take that idea seriously? Do you think we should take that idea seriously? And what are your thoughts more generally on hate speech? Well, first of all, the fact that speech does not rise to the level of satisfying the emergency standard and therefore should not be subject to government suppression. That doesn't mean that the speech does no harm, right? Much speech that uh, falls short of the emergency standard does potentially inflict harm. It may persuade people to adopt hateful ideas, which may lead them to engage in hateful conduct, or it may have an immediate adverse psychological or emotional impact on a member of the audience who hears it, or even somebody who belongs to the same group, you know, and hears about it. So uh, I'm going to paraphrase the United States Supreme Court, Ricardo, in a case in which it refused to allow government to punish hateful speech. It was hate. Uh, it was a hateful speech against gay people, against Catholics, against the military, against all kinds of groups. Uh, but there was no evidence or even allegation that there was anything close to specific direct harm. It was just ideas. And when I say just, I don't mean to minimize it. Uh, because here I'm going to paraphrase the Supreme Court, which said, we protect speech not despite the fact that it can do great harm, but precisely because of that fact. We protect speech because it is so powerful, and that power can do a great deal of harm as well as a great deal of good. Um, but essentially, uh, the court went on to say, uh, we have come to recognize through a long history during most of US history, by the way, the First Amendment was not enforced and government did get away with censoring speech. The First Amendment was ratified in 1791 and was not seriously enforced by the Supreme Court until the second half of the 20th century. So we have a lot of experience in our own country, as well as looking at countries around the world of what the consequences are of giving government even more latitude to punish speech that indirectly might potentially sometime in the future cause harm or that immediately causes a more 
subjective kind of harm, such as um, hurting somebody psychologically or uh, emotionally. Again, I don't mean at all to minimize these harms, but I do agree with the Supreme Court that even more harmful is giving that added degree of latitude to the government because there are no standards. The government is gonna engage in its own discretion even as to what is considered to be hate speech. No two people can agree on that. You know, many people in, in this country uh, consider Black Lives Matter to be very positive, pro-human rights, celebrating the dignity, especially of people who have uh, been oppressed throughout history. But then there are many who consider it to be hate speech, hate speech against white people, hate speech against police officers. Um, and, and then in turn, those who critique Black Lives Matter advocacy as hate speech, they are accused of engaging in hate speech. And I could give many other examples. I think one uh, really good example that, that came from um, the Supreme Court case I, I mentioned a moment ago, um, uh, the demonstrators who were demonstrating against um, LGBTQ individuals and against Catholics, those were members of a church, uh, a Baptist church. It was a, a small group, but they devoutly believed that and here I'm going to cite their their website. I'm going to give a trigger warning. It's uh, itself is a message that I consider hateful, but they don't. Um, and their their website and their slogan is "God hates fags," all one word. And they think that it's not that they hate gay people. They think that God has condemned gay people to hell so that they are the ones who are engaged in loving expression when they are trying to persuade people not to uh, live a gay lifestyle or to pursue their identity as, as a gay person. You know, you and I can radically disagree with their, their viewpoint and even many religious people radically disagree with their interpretation of Bible verses, but it's hard to say that that is emanating from, from hatred. So this is all a very, very subjective. And one can predict that government is consistently going to use any subjective discretionary power disproportionately to punish dissenting ideas, ideas that are uh, an expression that are critical of government policy, advocacy of reform. So you look at United States history and all of the movements for social reform, for promotion of human rights throughout our history uh, were suppressed uh, under rubrics of hate speech or treason or sedition or extremist or disinformation. You know, all of the terms that are thrown around today to in an attempt to stifle controversial speech in the past were used in the United States to suppress abolitionist speech and advocacy of women's suffrage and advocacy of reproductive freedom, access to contraception and abortion, uh, organizing movements for labor unions, uh, the LGBTQ rights movement, the civil rights movement, and on and on and on. And that's why 
um, throughout U.S. history, all advocates of human rights, including advocates of racial justice, have strongly opposed censorship, including censorship of hate speech. They knew that this was a tool that would be used against their speech, as, as, as these tools always have been. And by the way, in my hate speech book, I have examples from all over the world. I quote human rights activists from all over the world who oppose censoring hate speech for precisely this reason, not because of any concern that it would violate the free speech guarantees in their own countries. Um, their, their countries do allow suppression of hateful speech, but because it's ineffective at best and counterproductive at worst. It's not dealing with the underlying attitudes. You're you're never going to, you know, by punishing somebody, disabuse them of hateful ideologies. You'll probably have exactly the opposite impact. You will harden those attitudes. And if we really want to make a change, we have to do the much harder work of education, information, persuasion, rather than punishment. Okay, so now I have a question that is, I guess, a sort of multi-layered question, and I hope that I'm uh, I do a good job of articulating it correctly, or at least as I want to articulate it. But uh, I guess that we've been approaching things here mostly from a legal standpoint, that is punishing uh, certain kinds of expression legally. But of course, we also have societal norms and other non-legal ways of societally coercing people into not expressing certain kinds of ideas, right? So uh, when it comes to hate speech and even other kinds of speech that in particular cultures, in particular societies with particular norms, people are not fond of, I mean, do you think that as a, as a free speech advocate, basically, what would you say about that? Uh, I mean, how would you deal with societal norms? Because as we know, I mean, it's not just about the law. It's actually, if people want, it's actually very easy to curse people into not manifesting certain kinds of ideas because they are non-normative or something along those lines, right? So do you also take that into uh, consideration? I mean, society, I mean, societal norms, culture, and other things like that. Absolutely. And this is a very difficult issue, Ricardo, which I alluded to earlier on. And I thank you for coming back to it. Uh, because, um, first of all, the United States Supreme Court has said, if your only justification for suppressing speech is that you hate the idea or you disagree with the idea, that's not a justification for censorship, but that is a justification for what's often called counter speech, more speech rather than less. Don't call on the government to suppress it, but raise your own voice, you know, refute it, ignore it, use whatever strategy that civil society can invoke to reduce the attention and the credibility that the message gets. I mean, maybe even try to persuade the person who holds the idea to abandon the idea, but certainly try to dissuade others from being lured into accepting the idea. So education, persuasion, counter speech, these are all positive. However, as I indicated earlier, 
if the counter speech becomes so disproportionately harsh uh, and advocates and even succeeds in bringing about punitive consequences, not in the sense of government punishment, but social punishment, um, the least um, repressive of which would be isolation and shunning and shaming, but that's very painful, social media mobs piling on somebody. But it could also extend to losing your job or being dismissed from a, a university. You know, if you're at a private university or a private sector employer in the United States, you don't have a legal right uh, to remain as a student or so this isn't considered or as a faculty, as an employee. So this isn't considered government punishment. And this is what um, we refer to when we use the term cancel culture. It's not a scientifically defined term. And again, what's difficult about it is that cancel culture is brought about through the exercise of free speech, the very counter speech that I'm advocating. But the question is, when does counter speech go too far? If we recognize that, yes, we should have, of course we have the right to criticize in the strongest possible terms what somebody says, and we have the right to advocate that the person lose the job. That's our own free speech right. We have the right to organize Twitter mobs, um, exercising our freedom of association, banding together with other people to you know, put pressure on the employer to fire this employee. All of that is within our legal rights, but it raises the question of, is that the right thing for us to do if we want to create a society where people are not unduly intimidated from discussing controversial ideas. And, you know, I recognize that, again, this is a delicate balance to use a, um, a phrase that is very common in my country's legal culture. Uh, but I think it's a concept that has to exist everywhere because there's no bright line here between when something crosses the line between being appropriate counter speech and when it becomes um, unduly harsh, suppressive, um, a cancel culture. It's, it's a concept of proportionality that is very much woven into international human rights law as well in the concept of what is an appropriate punishment, right? There's an attempt to make it proportionate to the crime that's been done, to the wrong that's been done, but also to make it uh, well designed to bring about whatever positive goal you're seeking to achieve, which in every case, I hope, is to constructively reintegrate the person um, that we're singling out to become a productive, constructive member of society. So you want somebody to abandon their hateful ideology, but you don't want to squelch them and crush them and prevent them from ever getting a job again, right? Uh, so reasonable people can, can well disagree about this, but let me tell you um, that the social um, science surveys that have been conducted, the public polling that's been conducted in the United States uh, consistently show that people agree that we are living in a cancel culture that they think has gone too far all across the ideological spectrum. People are saying that they feel deterred, not from shouting crude racist epithets or you know, chanting the Unite the Right slogans, not at all, but they feel deterred from expressing even views that have mainstream support 
uh, but are viewed by some outspoken members of society as being racist or sexist. So polls show, for example, that the majority of Americans uh, oppose race-based affirmative action for college admissions of something that the United States Supreme Court recently held is unconstitutional, uh, and, but also has been deeply unpopular amidst ma major segments of the public. But very outspoken elites are very strongly identified with supporting affirmative action. And so I think most people, and I'm not just quoting myself, I'm quoting surveys, are afraid to express their candid views of opposing affirmative action because they are afraid that they will be accused of being a racist. Um, another really explosive issue in this country is transgender rights. You know, it, very important issue as a matter of um, uh, theoretical justice um, and also for the tiny number of people who are in that category, but still every human being is entitled to full human rights. So that's very important. But when you see the amount of um, attention that is paid to this issue, I think it is um, unfortunate that many people say they do not even question dear question whether trans men should be allowed to compete in women's sports. And even if their reason for concern is that they're feminists and they're afraid that this is undermining the equal opportunity for women. So it's not like it's some, you know, retrograde discriminatory rationale. It's a pro-feminist rationale. It's a very legitimate, plausible perspective. And yet people feel, which is shared by a large number of people, and yet people are afraid to express that view for fear that they're going to be accused of being discriminatory um, against trans people. Now, let me say, I think it's a great development in American society that like the worst epithet that can be hurled against you is that you're a racist or you're a transphobe or you know, you're know you an Islamophobe. I, I think it's wonderful that we are so attached to values of equality and human rights that it's odious to be accused of violating them. Uh, but to me, it's also odious that people are disempowered from engaging in very legitimate, serious, important policy debates about how do we um, reconcile racial justice concerns and the history of discrimination with ongoing admissions policies? How do we reconcile claims of women who cannot compete equally with men, with trans men. And these are difficult issues that deserve to be debated. And the cancel culture, therefore, is, I think, a very serious problem. So I would like to ask you now about the idea of the marketplace of ideas. So what is it uh, exactly? And then I will have a follow up to that. The marketplace of ideas is a metaphor that's often used to paraphrase a very famous Supreme Court decision or opinion by uh, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes early in the 20th century, uh, when he said the best chance for truth emerging is through the marketplace of ideas. 
rather than through government picking and choosing. And many people, you know, create a straw person when they attack that metaphor. They say, oh, but the marketplace of ideas is not perfect and uh, truth is not guaranteed to uh, emerge from the marketplace of ideas. Correct. And Holmes never made that claim. Rather, he said truth is more likely it has a better chance of emerging through robust debate in an open marketplace uh, than it does through some uh, heavy handed gatekeeper in the government deciding what's true and what's false. So uh, related to that, or I guess at least to some extent related to that, and perhaps we can tie this question here to issues surrounding social media and speech on social media and all of that. What about misinformation specifically? Mm -hmm. Because uh, if we are talking about allowing for people who also spread uh, false information, misinformation, disinformation, wherever you want to call it, and depending on the specific case, uh, how would we deal with that? Then? So as is true for hate speech, um, and I think I mentioned earlier, disinformation and every other kind of controversial speech, extremist speech, pornography, um, they can and may be punished consistent with the emergency principle. So false speech may be punished when in particular factual context, it directly causes certain specific serious harm. One really good example is fraud. When somebody intentionally or recklessly makes a false statement of fact um, that intending somebody to rely on it to their detriment, the person does rely on it to their detriment and suffers harm in consequence. That is punishable and should be punishable. Another example of false information uh, that can and should be punished is defamation. When you intentionally say something false and harmful about somebody, undermining that person's reputation, which leads to some demonstrable harm, usually in terms of occupation or economics, um, that can and should be punished. Another good example is perjury. Uh, if you lie in a court of law, a trial, or another legal proceeding, you're undermining the system of justice that can and should be punished. But again, as with hate speech, you know, just this loose concept, anytime there is speech that is false, uh, saying that that can be punished, even if you can't show that it directly causes this imminent harm, it leads to the same kind of problem that we discussed earlier about giving the government open-ended discretion to punish hate speech apart from a specific tight and direct connection to harm. And for some of the exact same reasons, Ricardo, as I said, you know, one person's hate speech is somebody else's cherished speech. One person's disinformation or fake news, because in the United States, you know, Donald Trump talked about fake news and liberals mocked him. And now liberals talk about disinformation and conservatives mock. So it's the same concept, right? Whatever I consider to be false or people who agree with me consider to be false uh, will be disinformation. And those two 
examples that I gave show how incredibly subjective it is. Um, when you look at how the term disinformation has been slung around, um, it's never used, uh, to the best of my knowledge, against a matter of objectively verifiable or falsifiable fact. It's always applied, not, to, not surprisingly, because if you were lying uh, about something that's factual, uh, you're probably just going to be ignored, right? If you say the sun uh, rises in the West, I mean, people are going to ignore you, right? Um, but if you are taught, so what people get exercised about are matters of interpretation, analysis, perspective, opinion, and there, I could not agree more with the Supreme Court, which said there's no such thing as a false idea. You know, so what has been punished or called for punishment as disinformation in my country are matters of scientific interpretation and analysis about what were the causes of the COVID pandemic, uh, what are appropriate strategies for treating it or preventing it from spreading. And we've seen that even the most reputable scientists and scientific agencies have had different answers to these questions, sometimes diametrically different answers, as one would hope as new evidence comes in and as new analysis is undertaken. That's the whole marketplace of ideas, right? The scientific method is that uh, you let all of the ideas there, all of the interpretations are best suited to produce, to bring us closer to truth, rather than government picking and choosing. That's something that even if it doesn't rise to the standard of um, you know, fraud, should still be punished on some subjective basis. So studies have been done of disinformation laws, uh, including in the context of the pandemic, that have been enforced by governments around the world. And just as we see with hate speech, we see the same pattern here. Uh, the government consistently, not surprisingly, enforces those laws against critics of whatever policies the government itself is advocating. And that leads to suppression of information um, that is, is undermining people's health, right? For the sake of our health, we want to have as much access to as many theories and pieces of information and data and analysis as possible. Let the scientists debate it, um, not government officials uh, choking off important sources of information that could become essential for protecting public health. And so should social media be able to censor uh, certain kinds of speech or censor things like misinformation? Uh, social media companies as private sector entities have no First Amendment free speech rights in the United States. Um, under international human rights law, some companies have voluntarily said that they would adhere to international free speech standards, so I'll, I'll put that aside. Um, but even in that situation, I would say that I defend the right of private sector associations, including uh, business associations, including corporations, uh, to express their own 
free speech rights through exercising editorial control. You know, you're a private sector platform. You don't have to host every speaker. You don't have to host every idea. And I would say the same is true of uh, Twitter slash X or Facebook or any other platform. I'm very disturbed by the idea of government uh, trying to tell these private platforms what they must and must not air. Uh, that said, if we get beyond the legal rights, again, to the question of what is it right to do, I would urge those who wield such enormous power as the major social media platforms to exercise that power responsibly. And I think the way to do that is in a way that is consistent with the general free speech standards that we've been talking about. Um, for it's it, these companies have a right and they do exercise it to suppress what they consider to be hate speech, what they consider to be misinformation. And I see examples every day of uh, what to me seem to be arbitrary and even discriminatory exercises, irrational exercises of that subjective power. Um, I was doing an interview recently that was going to be for YouTube, and I was discussing a Supreme Court case, a uh, case that's pending before the Supreme Court now on some of these issues, and the host cut me off. He said, if, if you discuss this, I'm, my, the interview is going to be taken uh, down. To, YouTube won't air it. And, you know, maybe they'll take my podcast off YouTube altogether. I shouldn't have been shocked because I followed these issues. But um, I was talking about. So this, this also relates to your question, Ricardo. Even though social media companies are private sector entities, if their so-called content moderation decisions, you know, that's the term euphemism we use for censorship. Um, if they decide to take down certain disinformation, if it turns out that the reason they're doing that is not their own policies, but because they're getting pressured by the government to do it, that does raise a very serious First Amendment violation because the government may not do an end run around its own First Amendment responsibilities by delegating its sensorial activities to private sector entities. And by the way, all of the disinformation that's taken down by social media companies is completely constitutionally protected. There's no debate about that. Um, and that's why there's an incentive on the part of government officials to pressure the social media companies to do it voluntarily, quote unquote, because the government could not do it directly. But there's a very serious factual question about whether, you know, the government certainly has the right to try to persuade the companies to take down certain material, to encourage them to do that, to urge them to do it. But the government crosses the line um, uh, and it becomes unconstitutional when it's no longer encouragement, but it's coercion, you know, direct or veiled threats. If you don't do this, we're going to punish you legally. We're going to subject you to an antitrust investigation. We're going to repeal your immunity for third-party content, which they now have under an important federal statute and so forth. That's a, So that, again, as so many of these issues are, it's very fact specific. It really depends. The devil is in the details, as we often say, and the US Supreme Court is, is soon gonna be considering these questions.
Okay, so just before I move on to another topic uh, on the issue of misinformation, I mean, I have just one comment to make. I, I, perhaps this comes from my own personal sensibilities or perhaps it's uh, uh, in part because of me being a science communicator, but I, I would like to hear your thoughts about this. So uh, the issue I have with misinformation specifically is, so uh, let me just say right away that uh, I know that misinformation is not a big deal on social media or elsewhere because I've had conversations on the show with people who work specifically on this topic, social scientists. And I mean, most people out there do not fall for misinformation. Most people out there do not share misinformation and much less produce and divulge misinformation on social media and elsewhere. So I don't think it's that big of a deal, but still there, there's one very specific point that for me is a little bit more complicated. That is, um, it's hard for me to understand if we're talking about things like, for example, climate change denialism and the things related to anti-vaxxer positions. And I'm here, I'm not just talking about the COVID vaccines, I'm talking mm -hmm. about vaccines in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very hard for me to understand uh, and I'm not saying, oh, persecute legally people who post that kind of misinformation. I'm not saying that at all. I, I ju uh, it's just hard for me to understand what society gains when people communicate that sort of false information. I mean, I, I just don't uh, understand that point specifically. And perhaps... Mm -hmm. Perhaps yeah. you would have a, a a reply to that, or I I do, uh, and I can use an example. I'm not a scientist, but an example very close to my heart. As I mentioned, I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, and mm -hmm. I'm very disturbed by the um, rampant evidence of disbelief in or ignorance about the Holocaust, and. And therefore, I'm not going to say, and therefore, nonetheless, um, I oppose any laws to punish Holocaust denialism. And it really goes back because here's the value, um, Ricardo. If we allow false or misleading ideas to be circulated in public, it provides an opportunity for those of us who believe that they are false to demonstrate that they are false, to engage in debates and arguments and adduce the evidence uh, that will persuade other people and perhaps even persuade the people who are mouthing those ideas themselves. And that I think is definitely a net benefit uh, to having the ideas constantly retested, reexamined, and reaffirmed. It's a strengthening process. And it goes back to John Stuart Mill's famous defense of free speech in his classic work on liberty in 1859. He said, every idea should be, must be subject to challenge and question and debate, no matter how strongly you believe that it's true. In fact, the ideas that you are most uh, committed to are the ones that it's most important 
for you to question because there are logically three possibilities. You know, one is that it will be proven false. And you as a scientist certainly know that, you know, all great truths began as blasphemies. And, you know, even in the relatively recent past, what was seen as scientific orthodoxy has been has been disproven. Uh, so we can't rule out the possibility that it might be wrong. Uh, number two, even if not completely wrong, you may come to realize that there are some refinements, some additional nuances or perspectives or qualifications that have to be added to your idea that you have learned something from um, engaging with an idea that you ultimately consider, you know, not completely true, but maybe not completely false either. And so it does um, enhance your own pre-existing view. The third possibility is that you reject this idea as completely false. You end up completely reaffirming your pre-existing view, but that is still a benefit because you have deepened and enriched your understanding of your own idea. You are committed to it more strongly because you understand it better. Uh, every lawyer knows that the best way to strengthen your own arguments is to engage with the counter, the strongest counter arguments against it. You then understand your ideas in a deeper way. You're able to articulate them more persuasively to somebody else rather than just rotely reciting them as a dead dogma. So I think of it as as a kind of stress test, if you will. And that's why you were kind enough to read my new book on free speech. You know that the very first substantive chapter in the book, I say, what are the 12 strongest arguments against free speech? And I engage with them and I engage with them very seriously. And I'm grateful to people who ask me those questions and I never get tired of, of answering them again, re-examining them again. So I would like to ask you now about how freedom of speech connects or might connect to other kinds of related freedom. So the first one is freedom of the press. So is there any relationship there? There is a very strong overlap. Uh, in, in fact, essentially, uh, they are identical freedoms in the sense that um, it doesn't matter whether you base a claim on, let's say you're a newspaper or in your case, you're a you know, podcast or whatever your medium is. If you said, I have a First Amendment free speech right, it would be exactly the same analysis as if you said, I have a First Amendment free press right. So many people say, well, and, and, and there have been efforts over uh, the course of American history to argue that the press, whatever that is, should have some additional special rights above and beyond the rights of other speakers. Um, and the Supreme Court has consistently rejected those arguments. Uh, one argument has been that members of the institutional press should have special access to certain government facilities or government proceedings uh, as a representative of the people, and the Supreme Court has rejected that, in part because it doesn't want to be in the position of deciding who is the press. Um, the class 
classic uh, example of what was seen to be a violation of freedom of speech and press um, at the time of the American founding was the British requirement that um, to be a member of the press, you had to be licensed by the government. So that's completely the idea that the government is choosing who can be the reporters and the critics and the commentators is antithetical to our democratic form of government. So for that reason, the press has no special status. Now you may ask, why then did the framers put that phrase and freedom of speech and the press? Why have a phrase that's redundant, if you will, if freedom of speech would have been enough? And I think the consensus of historians is they wanted to make sure that the press was included within freedom of speech. And what about academic freedom? And in this particular case, I would like to ask you, in the US, in the particular case of the US, what kinds of freedoms in the, in the context of the campus for students and uh, faculty does the First Amendment uh, grant? Exactly. Well, again, if you're talking about a public university, which is completely subject to First Amendment, then yeah. in contexts where any citizen, any member of the community would have freedom of speech, let's say, you know, in an open park or a public street or sidewalk, uh, the same would be true of members of the campus community in analogous areas, uh, the campus mall or sidewalks or streets. Uh, if we're talking about a private university, they're not directly bound by the First Amendment, yet the vast majority have voluntarily decided as a matter of academic freedom, pedagogical concerns, pursuit of truth, that they will voluntarily honor the same First Amendment principles that they would be required to honor were they public universities. Um, when you get beyond um, the public areas to areas that are devoted to specific purposes, such as classrooms, then of course it makes sense to allow government to uh, and university officials and a private campus to impose restrictions that are consistent with the specific purpose of that location. So, uh, but the restrictions should always be viewpoint neutral. So if you're teaching a chemistry class, um, it, no student or any member of the public who might wander into the class has a right to start talking about poetry or about politics, regardless of what their viewpoint is. That is just in undermines the specific purpose of that specific government property at that particular time and place. I would say the most contentious issues about academic freedom, Ricardo, um, involve what, what are called extra extramural expressions by faculty members, that is not in their capacity as teachers or researchers. So if you're teaching a math class, you have no right as a professor to say anything about the conflict between Hamas and Israel, because it's just beyond your professional, it's inconsistent with your professional responsibility at that time in that place to be teaching math, not talking about international affairs. Um, however, 
Um, in your capacity as a citizen, a member of the community, you don't give up what would be your ordinary rights to make comments on contentious political issues on social media, in op-eds, in podcast interviews, and so forth. Uh, and so you may not be punished, no matter how controversial or unpopular those viewpoints are, that should not detract from your right to continue in your capacity as a faculty member. And, and that's where the issues get tricky because we've seen um, enormous pressure on campuses to punish even tenured professors who make politically unpopular statements on the per, per, in their extramural capacity. And there have been pressures from students, there have been pressures from other faculty members, there have been pressure from uh, members of the state legislature or other government officials. All of that deeply threatens academic freedom. So I have, I guess, two more questions. We've been focusing mostly, of course, on the U.S. That's where you come from and the country, I guess, you're more familiar with legally, culturally, politically, etc. So would you say that the U.S. Uh, is a special case in how free speech is approached politically and legally? As I said at the outset, many people are surprised to learn the extent to which international human rights free speech law overlaps with the major tenets of U.S. free speech law. In particular, the emergency concept is deeply embedded in the two major United Nations treaties that govern free speech, including one specifically on hate speech. Now, many people um, are aware that under the United Nations treaties, there's actually an obligation to punish, to restrict hate speech. That seems to be deeply inconsistent with US law at first blush. But when you look deeper into it and look at the interpretations and enforcement decisions that have been implemented by the UN officials and agencies who are responsible for monitoring compliance with those guarantees, you see that they say, yes, you do have an obligation uh, to restrict hate speech, but only consistent with the emergency principle only if the restriction is narrowly tailored and it's necessary in order and the least speech restrictive alternative to promote a countervailing goal of great importance. Um, the last couple of UN uh, officials who are in charge of free speech, the so-called special rapporteur for freedom of expression, uh, have very strongly stressed these overlapping principles, including in the context of social media content moderation standards. And they've said that um, these standards should be modeled on the very same principles that are embodied in US First Amendment law, uh, as well as international law. And so my last question will be, uh, throughout our conversation, you've mentioned things like cancel culture, for example, and other uh, threats to free speech, I guess we could call them that. Uh, how do you look at the current 
uh, um, I mean, the looking at the broader context outside the US, more globally, how do you look at the current state of free speech? I mean, do you think that globally it uh, free speech is protected enough? And if not, uh, I mean, uh, when we're pushing for more free speech, more free speech protections uh, in other countries, do you think that to some extent we should take into account, I don't know, some of their legal, political, social and cultural context when doing that or that perhaps we should just follow a set of principles like the ones you've been telling us about during our conversation? Excellent question, Ricardo. And as I keep stressing, uh, these principles are always applied in a very fact-specific, contextual fashion, right? You can have very general standards, which I do think are, not only do I think, but in fact are universal, as I've stressed, the, the universal concept reflected in United Nations treaties, which virtually every country in the world has adhered to, uh, that government may not suppress speech, even for the best of reasons, unless the restriction is narrowly tailored and necessary and the least speech restrictive alternative to promote whatever your countervailing goal is. That standard seems to me to be universal uh, because it makes so much common sense. Of course, we should be willing to give up some free speech if we can gain something important in return, such as safety or equality or public health. But why in the world should we give up free speech if it doesn't, in fact, advance safety or public health or equality, or if we could secure those gains without restricting free speech. So that logical proposition, it's not surprising, is reflected in an internationally uh, adhered to standard. But it's a standard that is applied in every situation with great sensitivity to the particular factual circumstances. So applying the very same standard in two different communities with different histories, different current realities, different traditions, different levels of police protection, on and on and on, may well result in different uh, outcomes. And uh, so there's a universality that recognizes the common principle, but also recognizes the individuality of each person and each country, each society, each community, each circumstance. That said, uh, freedom of speech principles are in danger, not only in the United States, but all over the world. I mentioned my colleague, Jakob Michangama, uh, the Danish uh, slash now based in the United States in part, uh, free speech expert and activist who has a new organization called the uh, Future of Free Speech. Uh, he recently, his entity recently issued a report about, uh, it had a very negative term. I think it was the free speech deficit, something like a, a term that uh, if not that exact word, that was the concept. 
that freedom of speech is embattled in countries all over the world, not just authoritarian countries where one would expect that, but in democratic countries all over the world, uh, including in the EU and other Western democracies. And it goes into a great deal of specifics. It's got appendices um, with specific uh, statutes and regulations and enforcement actions in every country. And um, it's, it's, it's sobering. Those of us who care about free speech principles, not because of some abstract fidelity, but as in my case, because I believe that without them, we're never going to have a vibrant democracy. We're never going to have full and equal human rights, uh, individual liberty. We really have a lot of work to do to shore up understanding and support for these principles and to make everybody understand that no matter who they are and no matter what they believe, they really depend on freedom of speech to advance their sense of identity and uh, their meaning and their causes in life. Great. So the book is again, Free Speech, What Everyone Needs to Know. Uh, there it is again. N nice cover, by the way. I really <laughs> love it. And I sent you a discount code that you can make available to um, viewers of your podcast. Oh, okay, great. Uh, I will include that in the description box of the interview. A and by the way, if people are interested, where they can find you and your work on the internet? The best place would be my faculty profile page, uh, nyls.edu. Great. So look, Nadine, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. I really loved our conversation and the book as well. So I really hope that everyone runs and buys it. It's very <laughs> interesting. Thank you so much, Ricardo. And thank you for your influential exercise of your free speech rights. <laughs> Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com and also please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Perergo Larson, Jerry Muller, and Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf, Alex, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Erica Lenny, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, then Demetri, Robert Windegar, Ruinacio, Zup, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Phil Gavana, Mikkel Stormir, Samuel Andre, Francis Forti, Agnunes, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nun Machado, Jonathan Labrant, John Nyars, Tantanti, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, John Weyre, Tom Hamel, Sardis, Franz David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraujo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Dana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavlo Stasevski, Nelek Bakka, Madison, Gary G. Alman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Paul Tolentino, John Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litsky, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Lowacki, George Stéphanus, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles de Moray, Alex Shaw, Maury Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilley Jr., Old Erringbone, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Zigoran, Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, 
Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Thomas Dovner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Kimberly Johnson, Benjamin Galbert, Jessica Nowicki, Linda Brandon, Nicholas Carlson, Ismael Benzliman, George Coriatis, Valentin Steinman, Per Crowley, Kate Van Goller, Alexander Hubbard, Liam Dunaway, B.R., Masood Ali Mohammadi, Perpendicular, Jonas Hertner, Ursula Goodenough, Gregory Hastings, David Pinsoff, Sean Nelson, Mike Lavigne, and Dios Necht. A special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Giancarlo Montenegro, Alni Cortiz and Nick Golden, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, Bogdan Canivets and Rosie. Thank you for all.